the Defence Secretary's Kenya Safari. And he says who's got a better gig in Whitehall? I think I've got the best job in government. All the MPs were there on holiday, so what happens now to the defence debate? And diplomacy's Twitter debate. Trump tells Iran who's boss. The Iranians say, look out for the mother of all wars. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. In for Kate Chabot this week. Yes, Gavin Williamson has paid his first visit to Africa as Defence Secretary, where agreements are being drawn up for army training to continue in Kenya. Battle group exercises have taken place on land near Nanuki for the last 10 years. As well as meeting troops and their families at Batuk headquarters in Kenya, he met the men and women running UK-funded courses to prevent sexual violence in war. Laura Makin-Isherwood reports. Nairobi, Kenya's capital and a key route into East Africa. This week, Gavin Williamson paid his first visit, the Defence Secretary's first port of call, the International Peace Support Training Centre on the outskirts of the city. Well, thank you very much for having me here. It's thank great you very to be here. This centre delivers courses on uh, all sorts of things from dialogue, negotiation and mediation, to protection of civilians, uh, to uh, gender and peace support operations. Lieutenant Colonel Tom Mallinson is Chief of Staff. We're delighted to see someone such as the Secretary of State to come and open one of our courses. Well, it is a great honour to be here. Around a third of the courses that run at the centre are funded by Britain. They aim to raise awareness of potential issues women face in conflict, one of Gavin Williamson's priorities. It's really important to me and we can actually play a a big role and we are playing a big role in training uh, literally hundreds of people in terms of actually how how to deal with some of those issues, uh, violence uh, and, you know, uh, sexual uh, exploitation and use that as a weapon. And women are also often missing from negotiating tables when it comes to promoting peace. British-funded courses are trying to change that in Africa, led by trainers like civilian advisor Dr Sally Wangamati. At the grassroots level, we see the women coming in strongly to advocate for, for peace. Look at the case of uh, Liberia, look at the case of Sierra Leone. So it's very important if we can build the capability of the women so that they are, we are able to harness that skill. When you're Defence Secretary, time is precious. And Gavin Williamson was whisked away for a private meeting with Kenya's Defence Minister before a flight north to Nanuki. Six times a year for the last 10 years, battle group training has been carried out on a working ranch 79,000 hectares big. There had been concern that that relationship may be faltering, but Gavin Williamson confirmed that licences will be renewed, reassuring land managers Mike Roberts and Harry Hanegraaff. Listening to him, uh, it looks like the agreements are all getting signed with the Kenya Defence Forces and Kenya government, um, so it looks like it's here to stay. Yeah, he's just brought some great news, so that's going to help all of us in Nakipia. Yeah. It may be the quiet season in Nanuki, but the views are still breathtaking. What we will do for the next half we are going to have to have is just, uh, just look at the scenery. Though Gavin Williamson didn't have too long, there was a helicopter to catch. 35 minutes flight away is Batuk's forward mounting assembly. This is where the exercising battle group, when they arrive, come and take over their equipment. Batic Commander Colonel Nick Wood gave the Defence Secretary the tour. So they'll arrive here from my staff, from my Batic staff, they'll then conduct a, a handover. The base is also home to families, and after meeting some of them, the Defence Secretary had time to reflect on his first day in Africa. 
Well, it's been absolutely amazing just to see how much the uh, British Armed Forces do uh, here in Kenya and the deep relationship that we've got with the Kenyan government. Wait! Standard! East! His first visit, seemingly a success. Laura making issue with Forces News, Kenya. Well, listening to me, or listening to that with me, rather, was Christopher Lee, our BFBS defence analyst, who's in the studio as ever. Christopher, why is it important, firstly, to have British troops in Africa at this point in time? Well, I mean, it, it, it's something which we've done for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment, it's, it's a really good idea for, for about three reasons. One, it's a good training area. And it's one that we know the politics are right. Um, therefore, we can adjust the politics to suit ourselves to what we're doing. We can plan a long way forward in, in exercise terms with the right people. And the right people are there for a long time. And so there's continuity. Uh, the second part of it is that the, the Kenyans, by and large, are used to us being there. And Does that's it- good. But the third part of it is particularly at the moment, and that's, that's the need to develop the training future training of people who will be part of United Nations uh, peacekeeping operations. And although this training isn't part of it, this is, you know, battle attack, um, that doesn't matter. It's the same sort of people. So you're dealing with a half-colonel somewhere. That half-colonel could be driving a... Uh, a, a, a UN force in, in somewhere else in five years' time, and you want to be alongside him. Yes, we've seen Brits in Sierra Leone, for example, training people from the African Union, same sort of thing. It's influencing power in a much more subtle way. Let's get back, though, to the Defence Secretary, um, Gavin Williamson. Laura Makin Isherwood's been travelling with him, and she got the opportunity to ask him how he felt about the job he's now been doing for the last nine months. Here's what he had to say. So I, I think I've got the best job in government, uh, and you... What inspires you is when you meet the people, uh, whether it's here in Kenya, whether it's in Afghanistan, whether it's any part of the world where you've got British service personnel making a real difference. It just makes you, it's a very humbling experience and makes you realise what an important role you have in terms of representing them and trying to get the very best for them. Um, Has it been challenging? Incredibly so. I couldn't believe how much I've had to learn, but it is the people. We've got the best people that can advise you um, and what you want, uh, well, what I want to be, is I very much want to be the armed forces uh, voice around that cabinet table and that's what I'm trying to be. But what has struck me is what a difference our armed forces can make and it doesn't always have to be in uh, major conflicts, it's actually about giving other nations the confidence and actually the belief that they actually can deliver the armed forces that they need in order to keep themselves secure and the world is becoming so much uh, less of a safe place than it has been over the last few decades and the armed forces is playing an increasingly important role in every part of the globe so it's uh, incredibly proud to be doing that job. Well he seems to be loving that job doesn't he Christopher? Well he does when he says it's the best job in government now from what I heard of Gavin Williamson he was thinking the Prime Minister was the best. Uh, <laughs> I think he's probably saying it's better than being Chief Whip. <laughs> well, that's right. And they always say that, and the Chancellor will have other views on this. Uh, the other part of it is around the Cabinet table. He said, you know, he's got to be the best guy around the Cabinet table. And there's always the idea that the, the, the Defence Secretary, if you ask the Chief of Staff, well, you know, what do you want? They say, we want somebody who's good in Cabinet, uh, because the, the stakes are pretty high. At the moment, they, they go as high as the uh, Chief Secretary of the Treasury, the, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and they get eyeballed and again uh, I don't know cabinet is what 21 I can't remember 21 22 mm. ministers the defense budgets three four in Whitehall and yet the position of the defense secretary 
is maybe not around, not much more than sort of 12, 13 in, in, in cabinet importance. And when you, you see those, you can see why. But he does seem to be pushing himself up that list of importance, doesn't he? Your assessment of him so far, he, he seems very supportive of the troops. We've seen that before. But he seems to be using every opportunity he has to speak, to push industry, for example, to, to back the armed forces. I think he listens and he asks the right questions. Um, there was, there was I mean, Dennis Healy, who was one of the most successful defence secretaries, uh, who was a Labour defence secretary, and you can imagine the services perhaps didn't necessarily always like a Labour defence secretary. And he was the man that pulled everybody back from East of Suez. But he knew what was needed to mm. do. He explained it, and everybody knew what they were doing. Um, and there's a sense here that, um, that Gavin Williamson didn't just come in and say, okay, well, I'll take on what the other guy was doing, and perhaps we can get some arrangement with with the, with the treasury over this. Uh, he, he, it's not, it's you know, it's a very good thing. You you got to have a minister who's ambitious. Yeah. Otherwise, he just sort of sits there and orders more coffee. So you know, this guy is ambitious, young enough, looks the part, sounds the part, but he asks the questions. He looks down the end of it, uh, at, at the money list. Yeah. And he said it comes to thirty-seven billions. Why does it come to 37 billions? Because when I go to the Treasury or when I go into Cabinet, someone is going to ask me, so I'm asking you. And that is the way to get on first name terms with your permanent secretary. So Gavin Williamson is asking the right questions. Let us ask some of the right questions now ourselves, because Parliament is on summer recess. MPs are on their holidays or doing whatever MPs do when the recess is on. So that does leave the defence debate floating around in the ether a little bit. Lots of issues still continuing. So let us now look at the land and how it lies. And joining us to do that is Francis Tewser, the editor of Defence Analysis. Hello, Francis. Hi, now, let's, let's start now with this big decision that there hasn't been a decision on, which is the lack of decision and clarity on money. Where exactly are we? Um, there is still no clarity. There is still no money. And um, I have to say I disagree with Chris profoundly. W Gavin Williamson has no traction in Cabinet. He has put forward some amazing cases for why defence needs more money, and he has received nothing in return. Even... The army pay review um, he got cut down on and told he has to fund it out of the current budget, which is, in effect, a budget cut. So, um, you know, it gets worse and worse. But, Francis, you, you said yourself we haven't got any figures yet. We don't know what traction he's getting in Cabinet because we still don't have those figures out from this review. Um, the fact that he, we have got the pay review body saying, yes, give them 2.9%, and they got 2% plus a one-off 0.9% not to be repeated, not pensionable, and so forth. That tells you that at the top level, be it number 10, be it at the Treasury, there is no traction for defence, and that is worrying. But that is the same, though, with the police force, for example. They got a very similar sort of thing. So it's a little unfair to say that it's just him failing here. Um, if he does not get this type of money coming in, I have to say that's a failure and if there is a problem you go back to the big presentation given he was there but by the chief of the defense staff general carter uh, where theresa may the prime minister just said you mentioned a tier one military power go away and justify it um the problem i see is that uh, the secretary of state for defense has slightly sold out to the establishment the military establishment um in possibly he wants to be liked, and he has not asked the right question. And he's come up against the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Let's not forget, Philip Hammond was Secretary of State for, what, three years for defence? 
and he knows where an awful lot of the skeletons um, you know, are hanging in cupboards where the bodies are buried and he's come up against an operator who's stuck a stiletto through his ribs. Christopher, Francis completely disagrees with your assessment. Well, no, he doesn't actually disagree. He thinks he does, that's all. I know Francis. Um, now, I'll tell you, the, the, the Charles of the Exchequer and the Chief Secretary of the Treasury had already worked out that this is how this, this money would have been paid. It should have been paid ages ago because there was a review body... Had, had decided how much. What they can't decide is how it should be explained, and the explanation has come from the Chancellor, uh, who'd already explained it to his predecessor, and that's Gavin Williams' his, his predecessor, and with the backing of the of, of the Prime Minister, and said, OK, why not do it that way? I think what is particularly important now is, is to start looking at some of the things that you just don't make sense. For example, the the, the, the Type 31 uh, frigates, for example, um, there was a really sort of daft idea of how to quote for these. And let's go around to everybody and say, look, see if you can make me a cheap frigate or cheap uh, a vessel, surface vessel. Tell me how much it's going to cost. And probably nobody's ever tried to do that since the Type 21. Type 21, and that didn't work either. And it's those sort of decisions, those decisions that don't make any sense and don't make any sense to some extent to the Chiefs of Staff, but more importantly to the, to the down table uh, people who, who are doing the designs and the requirements for these uh, vessels and vehicles and systems. Uh, and we still talk about uh, Frez as if it might one day turn up. Yeah, let's pick up on this in some more detail, Francis. Mm, Christopher's sure. referring to things like Ajax. I remember going to the uh, factory for that in uh, Merthyr Tydville in Wales several years ago now. That's not mm -hmm. still on stream. Warrior improvements at a stand still here. Armour personnel carriers done reports on various iterations of how that's going to work over the years. Still not on stream. And then, of course, Frez, as Christopher mentioned. What's at the root of all this delay? Well, let's bury Frez. Frez died as a programme correctly at least 80 years ago. But it doesn't matter because it's all relevant to the fact that the army has managed to mess up its procurement massively. They keep on uh, basically going catalogue shopping, going, oh, that looks nice, oh, that looks nice. And they never actually buy anything. Whereas both the RAF and the Royal Navy go, this looks good, let's buy it. And they get it into the budget. And so Type 26 is into the budget. Type 31 we can go there very briefly. It was a program designed on foundations of sand. The market analysis was rubbish, and I'm not surprised it's died. But the army, you know, I've covered a new generation of APC, wheeled or tracked mm. the army, since 1990, and they still have not bought it. The army is seemingly incapable of saying, do you know what? This looks good enough. Let's buy it. They've down-selected Boxer, which is a very good vehicle, absolutely. And we are now getting stuck in the treacle of contracting, which someone actually needs to cut the Gordian knot and say, for God's sake, find the money. We, the money should be there, not all of it, I have to stress. Let's start buying some vehicles. Yes, it was interesting. I was recently at uh, RAF Fairford just before Riyadh and we saw the new RAF drone fly in for the first time, first autonomous flight of that sort of vehicle over the Atlantic. They seem to be making progress there. But I want to pick up on a point. It's not just the Army. It, the Navy here as well with the Type 31s. Do you share Christopher's assessment that by just putting it out there, you're never going to get back what you need? Um, I think the problem with um, Type 31 is 
they have opted to go for something that is absolutely fundamentally unachievable. Unless you are talking about uh, a ship built in China or somewhere like that, a £250 million warship, please note, warship, something you can send into harm's way is absolutely unachievable. And the problem is there is doctrine and dogma inside both uh, main building and the Royal Navy that they can get this and they are basing their hopes and their aspirations on nothing. Francis, just finally, for the end user in this, the soldiers, sailors, airmen and women, what does this tell them? How does it make them feel about the people that are supposed to be providing them with the right kit? If you are in the army and you're still having to operate... FE430 um, tracked APCs, which date back to, God, some of them are the late 1950s. Uh, if you are in the Royal Navy and looking at Type 23s, which, because they are very good ships and well used, are getting knackered, you can understand why people are getting slightly dispirited. And um, you would want to see some new ships as quickly as possible. You would want to see new armoured personnel carriers as quickly as possible. And I have to say the responsibility comes down to people in uniform. Christopher Lee. Can we just go back? If you went back sort of 35 years when Michael Heseltine became Defence Secretary, he saw exactly what uh, what Francis is describing now. He brought in a man, I can't remember, did he work for Marks and Sparks, something like Peter Levine, to sort it? It was never sorted. That's how old the problem is. And the problem is actually older than any theory that's coming out at the moment. It's a bit like painting the fourth bridge before they invented the wonderful new paint that got rid of the need to do it. Or the bridge. Or the bridge. (laughs) Francis Tusa, been lovely to speak to you again. Thank you for joining us. Still to come on today's programme, the Defence Secretary continues his travels today. He's in Romania. And the remains of US soldiers brought back to the United States 70 years after the war in Korea. Now, President Trump has offered to meet Iran's leaders, saying he wants to work out something meaningful to replace the multinational nuclear agreement it abandoned back in May. He says he's ready to talk when they are. I would certainly meet with Iran if they wanted to meet. I don't know that they're ready yet. They're having a hard time right now. But I ended the Iran deal. It was a ridiculous deal. I do believe that they will probably end up wanting to meet. And I'm ready to meet anytime they want to. And I don't do that from strength or from weakness. I think it's an appropriate thing to do. There we go. That was Donald Trump. Professor Wynne Bowen is head of the School of Security Studies at King's College London. Joins us now. Hello there, Wynne. Hi, Tim. Now, is this a battle of Iran intending to be a nuclear power and Trump's US determination to stave Iran, or starve Iran, rather, into a more explicit agreement? Um, I, I think um, on, on the latter point about what, what Trump is up to, clearly he's uh, been ramping up the pressure on Iran now for some time. Um, he was very critical of the Iran deal in the election campaign and also since then. So clearly he wants to um, produce something that is, I guess, more far-reaching, uh, uh, in terms of Iran's, not just its nuclear program, but I think its foreign and security policy in general. So it's um, its behaviour in the Middle East uh, and everything else. But I think we don't, we, sh- we shouldn't under- underestimate um, the domestic political aspect uh, to all of this. Um, you know, President Trump has been distancing himself from multiple things that his predecessor, Barack Obama, uh, had achieved. 
And I think um, you've got to um, understand what Trump is doing, at least through that lens of, of domestic politics. Yeah, and Trump has shown as well he'll distance himself and then completely about turn and come back at it afresh. Just look at what happened with his meeting with the North Korean leader. A year before that, he was saying, well, we'll never meet him and all this sort of thing. So with that in mind, why are UK and France still clinging on to the original agreement? Because Trump has shown that that sort of thing will be dead now. He won't go back to that. He won't go back to that. Well, I think basically, you know, the UK and France, um, you know, China and the Russians as well are, are, are clinging to the JCPOA because they see it as um, the only uh, agreement that was, was possible to negotiate with the Iranians. You know, it allows them to maintain uranium enrichment at a low level in terms of the capability, but that was the only thing that the Iranians were, well, the Iranians were not willing to fully give up on enrichment. They would significantly roll the program back, but, but not but retain the ability to do it. And that um, issue is tied to sovereignty in the Iranian political debate, that any partition in Iran could never have walked back completely on that capability. And so the JCPOA was seen as basically the only deal that was possible. It may not be a perfect deal. I don't think anybody's saying it's a perfect deal, but it was the only deal possible to slow down that program and to give breathing space to the international community to be able to react if Iran was to decide to take that program overtly down a military path. Where is Iran sitting with this now? What are its aims and objectives? Uh, in, in general terms, I think um, on the nuclear deal, I mean, they are very much trying to rely on the Europeans to try to you know, maintain sort of the economic links with Iran. They've said as much and they continue to repeat that. Um, the problem for the Europeans is that um, they've got the risk of American secondary sanctions, so not just the sanctions that directly target the Iranian economy and Iranian, Iranian entities. Um, it's now, um, you know, any company that might actually want to trade um, uh, with Iran. That's not not an American company. So I don't. Where, where, where it goes next is very difficult to know. Um, it's very interesting to think about whether or not um, they may, at some point, respond to uh, Trump's request for a discussion. Um, but perhaps to do that um, more covertly, so outside of um, public view. If we think about the, how the North Korea situation. Um, began. It was because Pompeo made um, some um, closed secret trips to, to to North Korea to get that moving. So it'll be interesting to see how things develop in the future. It's very difficult for the Iranians, though, to engage, particularly for the Supreme Leader, to engage um, with the United States directly outside of sort of a multilateral process because there's this... Um, sorry. Okay. Sorry, yes, we're having a few breakups on the line there. Professor Wynne Bowen, head of the uh, School of Security Studies at King's College London, thank you very much for joining us. Well, let's move back now to the Defence Secretary. Earlier in the programme, we heard that he'd uh, started his week in Kenya and he's now moved to Romania, where he today announced that the UK is planning to develop new defence plans with Romania. British Army will support a Romanian training exercise later this year, known as Exercise Scorpion's Fury, while a Memorandum of Understanding on Future Defence Cooperation will also be developed. It's already being seen as Britain reaching out post-Brexit and keeping up the pressure on Russia, which it still sees as a major threat. Well, um, he sent the message to Russia, incidentally, and this is a little clip of him doing that. In the past few years, the United Kingdom has witnessed a tenfold increase in Russian submarine activity in the North Atlantic and the use of nerve agents in Salisbury. 
the first use of nerve agents on European soil since the Second World War. So it is essential that we stand together in solidarity because we are two nations that have so much in common. There we go, this is the Secretary of State for Defence. So Christopher, interesting developments coming out of Romania and Defence Secretary's visit there. We're also hearing that UK personnel are going to have a mentoring role uh, in the country, including a, a classroom-based training role. Unexpected? Not entirely. And I tell you, if you go back, say, two years, and you go back to what the Americans were proposing in NATO, and they sent a, a two-star general down, an American two-star general down to Romania from Brussels to say if we were going to have a forward operating base, which would have to, for example, include a quick reaction alert, also training purposes, because we can't expect them to be able to train, not that they aren't good soldiers maybe, but they don't operate with our systems. They don't fit in mm. with NATO systems. And it may be that if you get into a nasty sort of shower down there, it is not just a question of saying, can you handle it? It's a question of, can you handle it back up the line through to NATO? So this is, a if you imagine a line from Brussels down to Romania, and that's what you've got to think of. It's interesting also that Secretary of State is still going on about uh, 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 nerve agents mm. and that the Russians were behind it. And the Prime Minister and co have been very, very quiet lately uh, to say, well, maybe, maybe the Russians were behind it, but who was behind it in Russia, we're not quite sure. They've been backing down, not Secretary of State. Secretary of State actually still remembers there's a good headline in it somewhere. Yeah, he's ploughing that furrow. We've heard today that uh, apparently, according to reports, uh, rubbish bins from Salisbury have been taken to the Defence Laboratories at Porton Dam. Not before time. They should have done that ten years ago. <laughs> um, it's very interesting. Britain has been working in Romania on this air policing role. And we've seen great film of that from our reporter James Hurst, who's been out there a couple of times. RAF typhoons have now intercepted two Russian patrols there. That's part of a NATO overarching sort of strategy for defence. We haven't got the detail on this yet, but it certainly looks as though Britain is, is doing a unilateral thing here and getting closer to Romania. Is that the way we're going to shape things up more now? Well, you do that anyway. I think, yeah? I, I think you'll find that other countries are also in there and that I mean, he's announcing what we're doing. Um, but if, if when NATO works properly, it's working in, if you like, in little pigeons, as, as, as uh, uh, Joe Luntz, one of the old NATO secretaries generally used to say. And he said, I like little pigeons, he said, because he said, you send them to fly and they come home to the same place. In other words, uh, all sorts of countries take up the jobs that they can do. For example, one of the things that they have not announced, but they will be announcing, is the fact that there will be something on... Uh, 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 people hacking into uh, NATO communication systems and they'll set up a unit in Romania to actually do that. And so that and that will report to somewhere in Estonia, for example. Yes. And so you can see where the where the where the curve comes through every sort of asset and every river bend of of, of NATO cooperation, twenty eight, twenty nine countries. And that is also another area where the Defence Secretary, it's a bit of a theme of today's show, but he has been very hot on cyber and, and talking up the dangers of cyber warfare at every opportunity to a level with all the conventional forms. It's but the third biggest third biggest form of, 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 of military understanding at the moment. 
interesting times. Well, that's all going to develop. We'll bring you more on that as the weeks go by, no doubt. But I just wanted to finish today, Christopher, on a military ceremony that's taken place in Hawaii to mark the repatriation from North Korea of the remains of US soldiers killed during the Korean War almost 70 years ago. Mr Trump has tweeted his thanks to the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un for starting the process of sending home America's fallen. And I gather there are some 300 unaccounted for British service personnel from that conflict as well. A sign, perhaps, of the progress made in Korea, but also it's important else, to remember it? back. It's something else that every country wants to bring its dead back uh, from a war. And this is something which is not just Korea. There's Vietnam. It's still, a, it's, it's still a difficulty for the Americans. And the Americans also have a huge uh, vets uh, organisation. And they remember. They remember every week. They have names called, they have a roll call of, 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 of soldiers who have not been returned every week. And in fact, in somewhere like America, which is where we're talking about now, it's so important that it goes back to 1861 with the American Civil War and people still talk about a name in the, in the churches and the chapels, uh, the bodies of people who disappeared in that war, because it's the mm. biggest scar on, in American history, why they have not been brought back to their homes. But this is particularly important, and it's interesting the language that Mr. Trump uh, uses. It's not, the, it's not the usual diplomatic Trump language. He talks of it's, 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 it's a sweet idea. Mm. Uh, he biggest understands. diplomatic move this yeah. week. <laughs> Thank you, Christopher. Thank you very much for being there once again on SITREP. That is all we have time for this week. But do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page. Send us your comments, as long as they're nice, please. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And never miss an episode by subscribing to this show as something called a podcast. Do do that. It'll be great fun. I'm Tim Cooper. Thank you very much indeed for listening from me and the entire SITREP team here at BFBS. Goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Military lab check.